All right, here we go. Uh, let's get back to being professional. On uh, 3, 2, 1, uh, we are speaking with the guitarist Joe Bonamassa, of course, one of the greatest. And as we say in Montreal, le bonjour, Joe. Comment allez-vous? Ça va bien? Or how are you? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me back. You Absolutely. Know, humans, you know. Isn't it fun to actually be human? Uh, I mean... We have done, you and I, you've, you've done plenty of phoners where you've been on both sides of the coin and I've done phoners where, you know, I'm interviewing somebody. And now with the pandemic, more and more artists want to, are just like, hey, let's just actually see each other and talk to each other. Isn't that a great new vibe? I mean, there is a silver lining, right? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're looking at a, an entire population that has, has pretty much, with exceptions, you know, have not had interhuman interactions, you know what I mean? Or human interactions um, for a year and change, you know, it'll be a year and change by the time it really starts to scale back, you know? And, it, and it's, and it's weird. Like if you walk through a store or I've, you know, I've been in a few airports over the summers and it's like, you know, people just like, you know, they, they're, they're like, they're like huddled, like something bad is going to happen. You know, it's like a, like an old lady clutching her purse. And you're like, um, you know, we're in a, we're in a Hudson news. but but it's it's interesting to me because you know when i walk down the street with a dog now people are going to the other side and it's just like oh i kind of like to have this i I got like deluxe sidewalk now it's kind of nice actually yeah and and the weird thing is is like it's what i used to do to people they're now doing it to me i used to be the guy used to walk to the other side because i just i just didn't want to interact with anybody you know, but now they're doing it to me, you know, and I'm like, oh, man, I used to make people, people feel pretty bad. You know, like I'm taking it personally. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm actually quite enjoying this. And and you know what, though? Uh, I, I live out in a forest, so basically I see raccoon. I mean, if you ever see my Twitter, you see me and the dog. Like I just posted me in the forest two seconds ago. That's the backyard. Right. Yeah. So I'm kind of used to this. So So COVID has just been my world now made global. So... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> works for me you know i'm comfortable i'm comfortable with that uh, it's gonna be odd but it's you know there is a light at the end of the tunnel i mean there is a as, as the brits say a jab and um that's coming and you know it's gonna it's you know i mean the jab's not gonna make it like just overnight like okay we're back you know let's 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 boogie it's gonna slowly roll out over the next six to eight ten months you know it, it is and so let me ask you about that in terms of innovation because, you know, before we got into the pandemic situation, we didn't do video interviews. We didn't do streaming shows. Do, do you think at some point we're going to reintegrate that into everything? Or when we get this jab, as you say, or the, the injection, we're just going to say, the hell with it, back to live, forget the live stream. Do we move forward? Do we, do we learn from this? Or do we go, eh, okay, it's, it's good, we're done. Let's back to where we were. I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle. I think there's going to be a there's going to be a, a there's going to be a knee jerk reaction going. Okay, I've seen in enough people's houses and kitchens and and seen enough jamming in pajamas, you know. And you know, I want to see. I was, you know, we're the rock stars of the world. You know, please please stand up and let's 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 uh, let's get back on stage. You know, but there's also going to be like okay, now that now that the the cat's out of the bag, you know, it's like, it's hard to put it back in. It, meaning that like, you know, you could, you can, you can do zoom in interviews. You, you don't, I mean, like I wouldn't want to be in the commercial real estate business right now. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to be, 
in a lot of businesses right now. You know, it, it you know, the notion of live streaming versus concerts, there's going to be the diehards that go, listen, a concert is a concert is a concert. It has to be in three dimensions. I'm sorry. You, it's, it's a, I'm one of those dinosaurs that say, listen, I don't care how good your speakers are. The fact that somebody's in, you're in the room with, with one of your favorite people, you know, and I always use this example. Isn't, isn't that part of it though, that, that, you're 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 like wow i'm in the same room or, or you know back in the day as jimmy Hendrix. or look gene simmons is a hundred feet from me i mean isn't that's part of it right it's a hundred percent and i'll tell you what one of my favorite parts of a bb king show every 25 years knowing the guy was the band would play and then the ladies and gentlemen bb king he didn't have to play or sing a note he just had to walk out he just had to be bb king that's right. He, he had to walk the, the walk out from the side of the stage to the center of the stage, and that was worth the price of admission for me because of the energy that you felt in the room from other folks. They were excited. You know, I'd seen him walk out hundreds of times, but it was still like I got to go see the intro. It's just my favorite part. Same thing with Buddy Guy. I'm like he was on our cruise in uh, February before all this started to get wonky. You know. Same deal, ladies and gentlemen. Buddy Guy walks out there, has his strat- polka dotted Stratocaster. It's exactly what you want to see. He's got a polka dotted shirt on. He walks out there, and he goes. He smiles and he goes, "Good evening." Whole crap. That's what a concert is. It's star time, and 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 you know, waiting for a live stream. It's not the same, you know. Yeah, it's you're seeing your favorite musicians and you're seeing you're seeing your favorite people, and it's and it's and it's a great stopgap, but it isn't star time, you know, because it is it's in two dimensions, you know, and, and it's very difficult to recreate that vibe in the room. It really is. Now you mentioned BB King, and and we know we of course. Oh, here's Alan Niven. Good day, Alan. How are you? Just out of the shower. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Alan. How you doing, man? I'm clean. <laughs> Alan, as you know, used to manage Guns N' Roses. You know, Alan, we're veering into, into two, TMI just right off the bat. What are we into right off the bat? Too much we're, information. Yeah, we're, we're making a left turn into the T, TMI <laughs> Avenue right off the bat here. You know? uh, but uh, Joe, just before I, I, I turn it over to Alan for a second, let me just ask you this, because you, you mentioned uh, uh, B.B. King, and we know the story of how you were 12 years old and you went on tour with him. My question to you is, do you pay that forward to, to another 12-year-old? Do you, do you somehow in your concerts figure out a way of, or, or, or you donate to a, a rock school? How do you, or, or is it just like, hey, I got to open for B.B. King and I'm cool? Or like, how do you sort of, you know? Well, here's how, you know, and I always used to feel guilty about it because we don't carry an opening act. And it's just because the nature of my audience, and I know they want to be home by 1030. Um, so the thing about, the thing about um, how we give back to young people is our foundation. Um, you know, the, the outreach that we do at the foundation, the artists that we've had on our, our, our cruise, which is basically, you know, our, our charitable cruise. Um, and we, you know, we've done, we've done some like, you know, uh, you know, telethons or, you know, streamathons where, you know, we're just any, any way I can do to, to give it somebody a leg up on, 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 you know, a, 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 a exposure to my audience. I'm, I'm happy to do because 
again, that's what people did for me. And it was Therogood and, and Peter Frampton and B.B. King, Buddy Guy. I mean, Greg Allman. That's funny because uh, uh, Alan and I interviewed George yesterday. George Thurgood. We interviewed him yesterday. You know, great cat. He's one of the best ever and one of the greatest entertainers. Well, well, Joe, obviously I have a slightly teabagged viewpoint on all this. Mm -hmm. And uh, although there are obviously those who would be contrary to this, but my teabag viewpoint is you give back to all those great writers and great musicians of the past by playing their songs and getting them exposed to people. I mean, you know, I kind of look back at some of the, the British blues players that we had in the uh, 60s and go, hey, you guys would still be listening to Pat Boone if it wasn't for us. <laughs> yeah, well, there's that, you know, I mean, you know, and, and you know, the one of the things about the British blues boom that always, you know, like got me involved. And, and I always say this, so I interviewed John, John, John Mayle a few weeks ago. And the thing about, I told him, I said, listen, you know, I'm a white suburban kid whose father had a good rock and roll record collection, but dabbled in the blues. So my host was John Mayle and the blues breaker. Cause I never would have heard of Otis Rush or Freddie King or any of the cats that those guys were covering if it wasn't for, for, um, you know, um, you know, John Mayall and Cream did Spoonful. Well, who's Spoonful? Howard Wolf, who wrote it? Willie Dixon. You know what I mean? Those were the gateway guys and the hosts for, for suburban white kids who grew up with their parents listening to rock and roll that was imported from, from, from the old country, as they say. Uh, I'm going to ask you this, and Alan, I'll go to you first, but you gave us the world, you, you gave the world Slash, and you gave the world Mark Kendall, and, and you know guitar players. H how do you, I don't want to say rate uh, Joe, because that's not, we're not going to rate him, but how do you, how does he match up for you in terms of feel and play, and, and what do you like about him? Because I know you love Black Country Communion. Um, oh, yeah, put me on the spot. Have me sitting in front of Joe and then <laughs> let me give him a gold or a silver star. Um, but I will tell you this story. Uh, back in the day when I started to develop a relationship with a guy called Scott Rowley, who edited a magazine called Classic Rock in the United Kingdom, he used to send me over discs of new music, new bands, new things. What do you think? And I remember very, very clearly sitting down with uh, the missus and going through one of those uh, discs one night. And we just looked at each other and said, there's one on this disc and it's head and shoulders above everything else that's on the disc. And we looked at it and we went, Bonamassa, that's an interesting name. But that was Joe. And we went, we went back to Scott and said, the only thing on this disc that we rate is this guitar player because he has amazing feel. And one of the things that I find interesting about Joe is that he was obviously very fast out of the game as a kid, but how unusual that somebody who is a prodigy actually blossoms and gets better and better and more expressive, more eloquent and more articulate in his playing. Um, you're a rare beast, Joe. Thank you, Alan. I, I appreciate the kind words. You know, I, I, it's Scott, you know, Scott took a chance on me and put me on the cover of Classic Rock magazine. They're like, everybody's like, who is this Bonna what guy? And, 
you know, and he invited me to the Classic Rock Awards. And I remember being um, at, it was uh, the, the, the Park Lane Sheridan is where they used to do it. And they would do it in the ballroom downstairs. And he was like, hey, you know, like go up there and play a song. You know, like we'll have Joe go play a song. I went up there and I, in front of Jeff Beck and Jimmy. I'm like, I'm like, I'm insane. Right. And and I remember Doc McGee coming like you were. He goes, you had brass balls to do that. I go, somebody asked me to do it. I said I couldn't get out. I was like, I like, you know, it's like the show must go on. I don't care who's in the room. But it was Scott that really championed me and and tangentially with Planet Rock Radio and 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 Paul Jones at the BBC really there was a there was a there was a, a, a real there was a real uh, you know under undercurrent of support for me in in the UK and that that kind of got me to the Albert Hall initially so so Alan well, was that a gold star deserves support and uh, you know the other interesting thing that entertains me a little bit is it's it's cool to hear you acknowledging support you got out of the United Kingdom. But there again, you know, where did Jimmy start? Uh, what was my strategy for breaking Guns N' Roses? It was through the UK. You know, you can, you, if you can get an, an audience to follow you there, you can get an audience to follow you anywhere. Well, you know, it was, it was very funny because, because a lot of my friends who had preceded me over there in Europe, you know, because we were struggling a lot in the United States and then, our, our, our partner over there at Ben Zill uh, at Mascot Records brought us over to Europe and we would go to Holland and Germany and pl play every Bavarian beer joint. And a lot of my friends who predated me going over to Europe would always say, listen, you know, don't be offended if you do really well in mainland Europe and then just stiff in the UK. And because it's a very, very discerning audience, a very specific audience. And it was like, OK, well, you know, that, I go of all places that I didn't want to stay. And then we ended up playing this place called Mr. Kipps and sold 300 tickets, our first show. And I was like, hmm. And then it just kind of just kept rolling. And I don't know what it was about the UK that that identified what, what I was trying to do. But they they understood that the, the reference points, they understood that there was the it was the British blues reference point of the, 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 the mid to late sixties. And they, they, they just embraced me, which I'm to this day, I'm grateful of for. Well, not everybody plays the Royal Albert Hall, Joe. Yep. Oh, so uh, that's a feather. That's a big feather in the cap. Since we're on uh, Royal Albert Hall, let's get over to the album royalty. I mean, here we are 15 minutes in and we haven't even mentioned the album. So you went over to Abbey Road. Now, Abbey Road, of course, we think the Beatles, we think, you know, the, the, the walkway outside. It is the place. It, it's like the mecca of recording, just, right. for the, just for the history. What was that like for you to go there? And, and how much of, of, of the historical thing made it a place that you just, I don't care, I, just, I have to be in these walls? Well, you know, that's the thing, you know, and about... Abbey Road Studios, they're happy to give you the grand tour, like right off the bat. And they'll show you the Hey Jude piano, the Lady Madonna piano, the, the microphones that Lennon sang on, McCartney, um, the EMI console from Studio 3, where Dark Side of the Moon, you know, and they have a lot of the history down. And it's a, it, it's a great tour. And they always end with the console, right? You know, or at least in my experience, it was they end with the console. 
And they're like, so what do you think? And I said, that's a fantastic console. What a piece of history. Now, as a collector, I'm going, this is the greatest thing ever. And I said, the one thing that this console won't do is write the songs. And, and that's the thing about Abbey Road Studios. Now, I'm more of an anorak with Abbey Road because I know that the Jeff Beck Truth album was recorded there. And I was like, okay, a lot of my DNA goes back to that record. And then obviously the Beatles and Pink Floyd and, and, and just about everything. You could think of that, you know, that, that was inspiring. But the thing is about that studio is it, it's not, it's not going to write the songs for you. So you have to go in there and be mindful that you still have a mission statement to make the best recording that you can that just happens to be recorded at a world-class studio named Abbey Road. And that was, that's what we did. And it came out great. I was really thrilled that, that the British influence, not only writing with Pete Brown and Bernie Marsden, help the uh, the sound but the actually just being in london and and kind of immersing ourselves in the in the, in the culture of both the studio and the town it worked does does that affect it at all i mean if you're in las vegas and there's all the gambling and stuff there's you get into one mindset and you go to la it's another mindset is there a very different mindset about recording in that kind of environment with that history and with you know the the the, the people around i mean does does it change can it can it affect the sound can it absolutely and you know i'm i'm a i'm a firm believer of a good old-fashioned you transplant the band and the gear someplace like you know like the stones they would go to montserrat they would go to muscle shoals and you know same thing with clapton you know and 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 a lot of these bands would just kind of pop around and it was because you know clapton being criteria you know and 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 not only you know not only making Derek and the Dominoes, but 461 Ocean Boulevard, and there's the you know the Dowd, um, the the Dowd references and 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 his his tenure. But the thing is, it also you know I remember being in Las Vegas recording the last record I did in Las Vegas was with Beth Hart, and it was our last studio record that we did, and it wasn't going so well. And I and I I remember thinking, boy, it's really good um, that the the bar area and the slot machine area is so conveniently located three floors down from the studio. <laughs> because after, after, after a couple of hours of those sessions, we needed to medicate ourselves, you know? So, so <laughs> that worked out well, you know? You know, obviously we wanted to work out a little bit better than it did, but, but ultimately through its challenges, the record came out good. Um, but it was, it was, it was, there's pros and cons to everything. Mitch, I'm muted. I am muted. I was going to say, Alan, did you want to ask a question? Because I've got a couple of follow-ups. What about being muted? No, no, no. About, about the album. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, yes. can you identify a single track or a single single and, I, and point a finger at it and go, that's the song I never recovered from? That's the one that got deeply into my bloodstream. That's the one that set me on my path. Oh, um, there's two. Um, and the first, the first one is Let Me Love You, Baby, which is the second song off of Jeff Beck Truth. And I go, because the first song is, is Shapes of Things, which is a good version. But it, it, was, it was a good version, and I understand why they, they, they recorded it. 
The second song was this swaggering version of, well, B.B. King did it. A lot of people did it. But, and I was like, that's, that's the, whatever that is, I want involved. I want to be involved in that. It, it rocked hard. It was bluesy. It was swinging. It was full of like piss and vinegar. And, and, but it also seemed very nonchalant, you know, like, which just cut the song, you know, so we can get out of here. Um, the second song that, that I can never shake, and it's very obvious, but it's still my favorite Desert Island Blues song, is The Thrill Is Gone. Because it also proved that you can get very sophisticated with the blues, but still maintain that connection with, with, the, with the original masters. You know, and, it, and it's just a, such a great sentiment, you know, right off the bat. I love songs that start with choruses and the hook. The thrill is gone. The thrill is gone away. That's all you need to say. You know, and that's right. volumes... And, you know, like how many people have tried to write The Thrill Is Gone, you know, since it came out? It's so painfully simple, but it's perfect in its execution and its sentiment. And the, the host who sang it, B.B. King, was the perfect guy to sing it. Absolutely. We're, let me get over then to uh, back to the album Royal T. You got to work with White Snake guitarist Bernie Marsden. And I love saying that because I love Bernie. Uh, talk to me about that friendship because you know there's a difference in age, there's a difference in this. Maybe it's not the same musical genres, and yet it works. And and his playing is just sublime. And those early White Snake albums are so incredibly bluesy. Uh, talk to me about having him participate on this album. Well, you know, Bernie and I have been friends for about twelve years, and we're guitar geeks. We're but we love the same stuff, you know. You know, and the great thing about Bernie is he was there hanging out with all those guys. You know what I mean? He knew Cozy Powell. He knew Ainsley Dunbar. He was there and, you know, he was hanging with, uh, you know, he was hanging with Jeff Beck. He was hanging with Gary Moore and, and, and was in this band called Whitesnake and wrote, you know, here I, you know, was part writer of Here I Go Again. And, you know, but he, he was always the blues foil um, to the the he was the blues foil to the more hard rock tendencies of the other members of the band and you know and that's that's kind of you know that's that's what made those those early re recordings you know work so well and um i love bernie in the sense that he is is enthusiastic about music as he was back when he was a kid and he's now and i think he's now about 70 years old and he's just He's just a wonderful cat and a great writer and singer and very underrated. Completely. And uh, Alan, I'll, I'll, let me ask one more question. Well, no, yeah, go ahead. I, I, I got to say, um, Bernie does have that youthfulness in him. I mean, he, he went and played with uh, my, my boy Chris Buck on, on a few gigs. Um, and Chris said it was just an absolute pleasure to be working with Bernie. That he he's got that fire. Um, great playing is like malaria; it's always in the bloodstream. It's just a question of whether you have a fever or not. That's it's always point. there. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's a good way to play. Now, you you did this the acoustic cream album. You did Sunshine of Your Love. Uh, it led to you working with Pete Brown, who was Cream's lyricist. Uh, talk to me about that, and and how important is it for you to have good lyrical content? Because ultimately, 
when you go see a Joe Bonamassa show, this is my perception, you want to see Joe Bonamassa rip on guitar. I mean, that's what, that's what you're paying for. But yet, you have to have other content. So how important is the whole lyrical thing to what you do? Or or is it just window dressing? I mean, is it the parsley on the steak? No, it's not. And, okay. you know, the more, the more T's and I's that you dot and cross, the better off you are as an artist. Now, I understand that people come to see my show. Be, and if I said, you know, I'm just going to, res- I'm just, you know, I got, I got a lot of stuff I want to get off my chest tonight. And um, I'm just going to grab this acoustic guitar and not take any solos and just sing some, some words to you. There will be open rebellion in the theater. Okay. Open rebellion. Okay. <laughs> I know why they're there. Okay. But if you can also say something with a lyric and you can also say something with a song, that's the perfect storm. You know, and the better the songs that you have, the better the better arrangements you have, the more musical that you are, the better statement that you make musically. You know, it it just goes to it just goes to bolster why people are there to begin with. So the solo is shaped up better, and being on, and not only is that a great song, it was a, it was a ripping guitar solo at the end. So that to me is a win win. A lot of times in blues rock, what gets left on the cutting room floor is like you said, lyrically, arrangements and songs. So the more you work on that tough stuff, everybody who gets into blues rock guitar, you know, as a professional could probably really play. So the more you work on the other stuff, the more your star rises because you, you've, put in, you've, you've put in that work and, and it pays off. It really does. I mean, I mean, when I started getting better songs and arrangements and production, my fortunes went up exponentially. That's that you can trace that right back to Kevin Shirt. Well, Mitch, you also got to keep in mind that uh, I mean, you know, as far as this this old tea bag is concerned, my initial connection with Howling Wall was his voice, which I found terrifying. I, I just I had up. no idea what he was on about, but I knew he meant it. Um, my initial connection with Muddy Waters was his voice and what he was saying. Um, you know, in, in, in the most simplistic blues structures, you say a couple of things, you play a couple of lines. You say a couple of things, you play a couple of lines. It, it, it's that balance between the two. But the power of the vocal of, of someone like Howling Wolf is just immeasurable. Yeah, and, and like those kind of guys can sing the, the phone book and make it seem authentic, you know? And, and, that's a that's a skill in itself. But if you're if you're saying something and like, you know, I was thinking I think back to guys like Willie Dixon, Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, Robert Johnson. These were these were high level poets, you know, that were that were taking what they saw and what they lived and putting it into poetry and and, and making it look easy and simple at the same time. We've been chasing it for 85 years, you know, and, and still can't figure it out. You know, and still can't do it in the way that 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 kind of services the soul, not the mind. You know, and it's and it's a it's it's really an interesting uh, it was a, it's a really interesting uh, way to look at songs, especially in a blues sense that they've all been written before. But how do you how do you just make interesting twists and turns to, to make them their, your own and make them mean something to other people? You know, you said a magic word. You used the word poetry. Mm-hmm. And in my book, I mean, you know, Jimi Hendrix, what else can ever be said? But the one thing that I think most people overlook with Jimi 
was he was an incredible poet. I mean, the song Drifting to me is just magical. And to me, yes, he play, he creates an incredible atmos and an, an amazing feel, but it's what he says with his words that really make that song for me. And, really does. you know, a brilliant blues rock guitar player and, and invented a playbook that we're still copying. But if Jimmy had average songs, his legend wouldn't be as bright as it was. You know, it would just be a guy playing crazy good over average songs. You start, right. you put real songs with, I mean, you know, out of this world playing. Now you have the legend and the, and the, and the, and the, the timeless music of Jimi Hendrix. And that's, that's, you know, that's, a, that's what a lot of people tend to overlook because they think it's a, it's a, it's a pissing contest of like, well, this guy can play better than you or that guy can play better. But who, it's whoever has the deck of cards with the best songs would generally be remembered more fondly. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. How many songs exist? Yeah, billions. <laughs> Let me ask you this, Joe. You, Joe, you, you hold on. on. Go ahead. Billions? Well, since the beginning of time, yeah. Six. I love you. I hate you. I feel good. I feel bad. The world is great. The world is fucked up. What brings me back all the time is the idiosyncrasy of the personality who is writing that song. It's how they express their own character. Right. It's how you it's how you take those sentiments and make them your own and make them very personal and and, it, and how it affects others. I've written songs that to me were very, very personal and very sad. And people play them at, at weddings and bar mitzvahs because they, they took it. They, they take it as a as a as a as a as a, as a joyous occasion. And I go, you didn't get why I wrote it. I don't care. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So it, it, it's all it's all personal it's interpretation of, of the words and the sentiment. Let me, let me ask you about the producer, Kevin Shirley. You have worked with Kevin a lot, but he's also done Iron Maiden, Slayer, yeah. Dream Theater, Rush, Aerosmith, which for some you'd say, well, that's not, that's not Joe Bonamassa's lane. That's a what does he bring in the fact that he does have that sort of heavy metal pedigree? And he's, of course, done a whole bunch of other stuff, but... Yeah. What can a guy like that bring instead of going, oh, I got the, the famous blues producer. I got the famous, you know, guitar producer. Having a guy who has that broad palette. Well, yeah, you, that's what you want. I mean, the thing about a producer of music. Now, there are, there, are certain, there are certain producers that's all they do is a certain style of music. Nashville is filled, filled with them. You know, it's like they're country, they're country producers. They do pop country. They do traditional country. They do some sort of... 615 type of music, Americana. Kevin can get in the room with Rush and Aerosmith and, and, and Slayer and apply the same principles that he applies to my records because they're, they're simple, but they're very, very in tune with what the artist and what music really is. Does it move me? Is it grooving? Is, it, is this the best song? And it doesn't matter if it's if it's hard rock or if it's if it's techno dance. Is it moving me as a musician and as a as a consumer? And you he sees it from from all sides, from the technical side, engineering side, but he also sees it from a consumer based 
side going, somebody's going to have to listen to this. So you can't make it too over their heads. You can't make it too inside baseball because then you're just making records for yourself. He likes to, he like me likes to make things big and pompous. And I'm like, I'm all about it. You know, strings, let's, let's boogie horns. Let's boogie big guitars in the blues context at nothing subtle. And, and that's why we work so well together because we, we just like, we like heavy music that, even if it's tender and sentiment and in, and in vibe, still digs a big hole in the ground when it's played. Yeah, and I'll 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 defer to Alan in one second, but I'll just ask this follow up: Is there at some point? I don't want to say a danger, but that's the only word that's coming to head. Where if you're just working with Kevin so often, it just becomes like this 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 team where it's just always it ends up being the same thing. Do, do you at some point have to move on and say, Kevin, I love you, but I have to do whatever Rick Rubin on this one just because I need a different something. Well, here's the thing. It's, it, 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 I, I learned from guys like, you know, like, you know, like Tom Dowd and, um, you know, and, uh, you know, the, the Allman Brothers sounded a lot different in 1969 as they did in 1990. Okay. Tom Dowd produced all the records. Okay. At certain point, it's, it's, it's your personal responsibility. You can't just say, you know, like when people hire a producer going, I'm going to hire Mutt Lang, produce a record, or Rick Rubin, produce a record. And Rick Rubin, or Mutt Lang, or Kevin Shirley, or, or whoever is going to get in the room, it's like, okay, what do you got? Uh, well, I hired you. I want that Rick Rubin sound. He's like, what do you got? Do you have, if you don't have anything, if you have nothing to say, if you have nothing to, to, to bring, and you're just looking for a Svengali, that's the word I was searching for yeah. in the stuff. Yeah, Great Canadian you're, band, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> if you're looking for a Svengali, then chances are artistically you're leaving a lot on the table. So when you show up, you got to like, this is the mission statement. This is where I'm at artistically at this particular time in my life. And then, then Evan's job or whoever's job is to make the best record for you. I just got done producing Eric Gales and I did, I did two records this year. Joanna Connor and I did Eric Gales. And, you know, you would think, well, Joe Bonamassa, Eric Gales get together. It's just a guitar, wank, extravaganza. No, because my thing to Eric, I said, we need to figure out what you want to say and we need to make you into an artist and we need to make you into, he's already an artist, but, but we need people to go, I didn't expect this from Eric Gales. You know, he's a real singer. He's a songwriter. He's an artist. 360 degrees around plus a brutally good guitar player that's that was that was the mission from 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 the downbeat and it's the same concept you apply to kevin shirley you know it's like it's like you work on the stuff that you're not as good at the guitar being i'm pretty good at it so you got to work on the other stuff absolutely alan go ahead You you work at Beth Hart. You obviously have the intelligence and consciousness to feel comfortable working with a female voice. Have you ever thought about making a record or, or cutting a couple of tracks with Ann Wilson, who I think could have been one of the greatest blues singers ever? Oh my God! Yeah, I mean, I would work Ann Wilson any time. I mean, she she's fantastic. You know, um, you know, the, one of the things about working with Beth, um, I had the idea because I was just a I, I had just got, this is early iTunes. I downloaded the Get Your Yaya's Out collection. You know, I already had the record, but I wanted the opening acts. 
I wanted B.B. King live at Madison Square Garden. One of his seminal performances was uh, during that. You know, please accept my love will change your life. Um, and Ike and Tina. So I basically bought the box set because I wanted the whole show. I wanted the opening acts. And when I heard, I heard Ike and Tina's set, which was basically just a bunch of amped up soul tunes and covers, and they were doing like Proud Mary, they were doing Come Together from the Beatles. And I had just seen Beth play in Lucerne, Switzerland. And I kind of started connecting the dots, and I said, well, if, if we could get her a bag of good songs, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter who wrote them, and a world-class band and dais and production, and just kind of send her out there and she can do her thing, this would be unstoppable. And, and, and we approached her and she was keen on doing it. And, and it was really a fun experience while it lasted. We've, we've done, I think, four records and a DVD. And it was a, it was a great experience. Um, and uh, she, you know, when she's on, there's no better for my money. And, and that's not a male-female thing. That's just, I don't care who's standing there. That is, that is Steve Marriott and, and Etta James reincarnated, and sometimes in the same song. Awesome. Absolutely. And uh, I will wrap up on this because I know you have to get going. Uh, we, of course, talk all the time about Black Country Communion. Last album came out in 2017. Uh, there's just a great love. There's, I mean, there's, there is a, a, a true, true, true love for that band. Is that something that you still want to revisit and you still want to do, or or do you get tired of the question? It's like, oh, really, another black? <laughs> like, where are you in that whole in that whole process? We talked about Glenn and I talked about um, now. Glenn is involved in a band called the Dead Daisies, and he's been busy with the Dead Daisies for I want to say a good year and a half. But we talked about um, exploring to start writing next month for for a a new a new record this was months ago before the pandemic so that's kind of been pushed a year out so everything like everything has been pushed a year out from where it was and um i think we have one more titanic record in us um and i think we have some shows left in us and i think you know i i enjoy being a member of black country community much more than i did in uh, 10 years ago um, 10 years ago, I was, it was a bit of a culture shock for me. Um, and to my own fault, I didn't, I could not adjust properly. And I think it was a culture shock for everybody just going, okay, everybody used to be in their own boss. Now there's a collective like, collectivity of it all. And, and, and you're like, ah, whatever. But, uh, but when the thing fires on all cylinders and, you know, you, you hear that bass, and you hear that voice, and then you hear Derek, and then you hear Jason. You're like, my God, this is what it was like back in 72, you know, when, when you know, Deep Purple Mark III, or I think, no, 47th year. So it was 73 was when they fired up. It was just the anniversary of the day. You know, when, when, when Coverdale and Glenn and Ian Pace and John Lord and Richie Blackmore fired up in Copenhagen at the KB Hall. Right. Yes. I posted yeah. about that yesterday, actually. We played there right before it burned down. Okay. And we butchered the song Burn. I was, I'll never forgive myself. It was Walter. We all did. Anyway, we should have known better. Anyway, but, it, but I go, this is what it was like. Okay. Because to have that confluence of energy 
in a rock and roll, classic rock and roll sense, you're just going, whoa, you know, that is what it was. That's moving air. And that's, you know, I was like, it, just to be a part of that is just, it, it's an honor. And, and I love all those guys. And, you know, so they're very, they're very thrilled. And, and, and Titanic has to be the name of the album. It just has to be. Just you're gonna to have to go with that. This is not an iceberg on the cover. <laughs> you're right. What could go wrong? Right? We'll, we'll put a boat and iceberg, and we'll, we'll name the record. What could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Alan, I will defer to you to wrap this one up. But Joe, uh, just always a pleasure. Uh, to me, it's always great to talk to you. But uh, go ahead, Alan. Uh, le, le plancher est à vous. The floor is yours. Well, Joe, I have to say it's a pleasure to meet you, and my apologies for being late, but um, I was early. somebody called early. Yeah, I was early. I actually, I, mis- I misread the email. I was 15 minutes early, so very rock star of me. But hey, early. the show must go on, so we got it started. That's the, hey, that's, how, that's what How happens. can a rock star be early, for God's sake? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you're used to Axel. That's a whole different... <laughs> That's a whole different ballgame. I never got used to Axel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, of course. Uh, Royalty, folks, is available now. It is fantastic. You've got uh, Jules Holland on there. You have got Anton Fig, who, of course, uh, famously hid himself on two Kiss records. Uh, right. Who else do we got there? Uh, we, we've got uh, uh, Bernie Marsden, Joe, and... And uh, the lyricist from Cream, it's and Abbey Road. I mean, it's, it's like the perfect uh, confluence of everything. It's 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 the perfect storm. And I, and I mentioned this the last time we talked. I go, Anton Fig needs a Brinks truck to haul out the money if he ever goes to a Kiss convention that he gets for autographs because he is the elusive last one on a lot of people's records that he never goes to Kiss conventions. He did one, and you know, and then you know he. He, he, he bought himself a, you know, a townhouse in New York City for $50 million. I mean, like, yeah, it was great. No, I'm just joking. But, but no, he's, he is a, the, 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 for Kiss Anorax, the fig is, uh, is a big part of that band's legacy. No, I know. But he, he was always busy with Letterman and stuff, and so he didn't need to do them. And I, I also think he's a bit shyer in terms of wanting to do those. I don't think he's a I want to sit and sign kind of guy, but. What a massive drummer. Holy fuck. What a massive drummer and a great guy. Love him to death. Yes. So. Uh, thank you, sir. Uh, thank you, Joe. Uh, Alan, anything? Just stay safe. I hope you're de- dealing with the COVID stuff okay. Yeah. Um, are, you going co- are you going cabin crazy yet? No, I've been, I've been, you know, I pop, I pop around, you know, I, I got the gloves and the mask and I, you know, I'm not scared of the airplane. So I, I pop around a little bit and, and, and visit various locations of guitar collections and so but yeah i think i think it, it, collectively i think the entire world is okay we're, we're good it's t- time to let's 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 start scaling back to where we left off yeah. and go and yeah and, exactly. and social yeah. beat again so it's Yes. Yeah, well, we're we're getting there. 2021 will definitely be, be better for rock and roll than 2020. And on that, uh, as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Always a pleasure. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. I'll see you guys soon. Yes. Cheers. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. All right. Let me hit. Let me hit.